The scripture reading today is from the book of Jonah and the gospel according to Matthew. A reading from Jonah, chapter 4. But the Ninevites' repentance was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? And now a reading from Matthew chapter 9. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. The word of the Lord. Take a moment now for silent reflection. Gracious God, we ask now that you would meet us in this room, however we find ourselves here today. Whatever it took to get us to walk up these steps and be in this room, and however we arrive, believing, not believing, trying to believe again, getting it, not getting it, and all the contradiction that we are, help us to believe that you see it. And you've never left us. You've always been right here with us. So help us to return to that today. Help us to relearn about your extravagant love that always pursues, always invites, is always present. So help us now to be present to your presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may be wondering why uh, those two texts, 
the last chapter of the book of Jonah, and then that little snippet from Matthew chapter 9. That's the, the very text that I preached on at the first worship service of this church on February 16th, 1997. And uh, what's been fascinating is to, to go back and look at those texts in the 59 and a half year old version of myself, <laughs> and I actually pulled out the notes from the 33-year-old version of myself, and there were a few discrepancies. <laughs> but there is that kid. Uh, I don't know if you can see that very well with our lighting system, but yeah, nice, uh, nice blue blazer, great tie there. So that picture is 33-year-old Fred. Um, I'd been here about two months. And uh, the seminary which I graduated from wanted to do a, uh, some kind of a magazine article on me. And, um, and I told him, I said, look, don't paint me as some kind of Jonah going to save San Francisco. And so they said, okay, but then they did it anyway. Um, they did it anyway. And you know what I've thought about this week is that I moved here thinking perhaps they were kind of right. I had my my problems with saviorism, um, but really, in many ways, the city of San Francisco needed to save me. I mean, listen, I know San Francisco has a million problems. I know it's actually very much in vogue right now to just rip San Francisco to shreds because we see people doing it all the time. But at the same time, I was both a combination of ignoring voices and ignorant of voices that I desperately needed to hear. And to hear those experiences and listen to those experiences to help me understand that the world is a little bit bigger than the one that I thought existed in 1997. As a kid in that picture, you know, he really didn't know himself or his story very well. A lot, a lot of repression was going on in that kid's life. Uh, didn't know how much I needed you to teach me, actually. Uh, didn't, uh, didn't really have a capacity in many ways to think outside of a more tribalistic, exclusivistic understanding of my Christianity. It was mired in those kinds of systems. And I look back at my sermon, and I said some good things, but I don't necessarily think I actually knew them like I needed to know them and believe them and apply them. I think of myself in those days as a little bit, this may not sound like very generous to me being to myself, but as a person who's a little bit theologically obtuse. So obtuse is such a good word, you know. In Shawshank Redemption, if you remember this, Andy Dufresne, I may be, some of you are like, I've never seen the film and don't care to. Um, but Andy Dufresne says to the warden, how could you be so obtuse? And it gets him thrown into solitary confinement. <laughs> And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of that going on there. It's like, well, how could you not have seen it? How could you have not known? Now, I just want to say that that's, that's Fred Harrell. You may be 33 and way farther down the line than I was. You probably are. 33-year-olds inspire me. So if you're here today and you're 33, I'm not judging you. I'm not telling you you're as clueless as I was when I was 33. At least it seems that way. 33-year-olds 30, inspire me. But as much as I wanted to avoid comparisons with Jonah, I have asked the question, what, how was I like Jonah? And it was like this. Jonah needed a major injection of discomfort into his life in order to grow up. 
It's just normally the way it happens. You know, we read about this little, this little episode here, because you know, you know the story of Jonah. Go preach to the Ninevites. It's the empire that had oppressed them, that had tortured them, that had killed them, that had murdered them. They were the baddest people imaginable, and God calls Jonah to go there, and Jonah says no, and he runs in the opposite direction. So you know that story. And Jonah didn't want any of them to believe what God had to say to them. And so God injected discomfort. <laughs> and he tells him to go get under this shade, and then the shade dries up, and Jonah gets a sunburn, which I really appreciate now since I'm practically bald and I've been sunburned <laughs> on top of the head. It's very uncomfortable for my bald brothers and sisters. You know, we don't travel without a hat. But this discomfort that I had sociologically, psychologically, theologically, it doesn't always serve us very well. Comfort rarely does. As I've said up here many times, you know, success has taught us all it can teach us by the time we're about 30. I don't know if Merton said that or Richard Rohr said that. It's not that it's a bad friend. It just doesn't have much to teach us. But discomfort or loss or pain, um, an injection of disruption does. So how did City Church San Francisco make it? Well, obviously brilliant preaching. But beyond that, <laughs> beyond that, you know, God, I mean, we can think of all these little things, God's grace, the timing of it all, et cetera. But here's what I think. At the end of the day, this church has bet it all on God's extravagant love over and over again. And so guess how many things I have to say about God's extravagant love? I have how many points? Thank you which is the orthodox way of preaching. Emily, I hope you like three points. <laughs> That's an old joke for those of you who've been around a long time. You know I joke about that. So I have to try to put something in here for everybody today, you know? So the first thing I just want to say is this. We already know about God's extravagant love. Jonah did. I don't know if you recognize that, but right there in that reading, as he's angry at God, he says to God, basically, I knew, I knew it about you. I knew the kind of God you were. I knew, it says, that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knew, and you know what? You do too. I think we all know down deep that this is exactly what God is like. A God of extravagant love. I actually said that in my 1997 sermon. God's love is radically compassionate. And then... I threw a whole bunch of caveats on that. But this, but this, but this, but this. But I think we know that God is love from our earliest days. I really do. And I think part of the human journey is, as we detach from that, that we begin with a unit of consciousness. We begin knowing in some mysterious way that the God who made us is a God of love. And we go through, we grow up, we have to go through this necessary journey. We compare, we begin to compare and contrast. We lose that consciousness and it turns into a self-consciousness. And I have brown hair, you have blonde, maybe I'd be better if I had blonde hair. And on and on it goes. And it, over time, we have to actually relearn that God is a God of extravagant love. 
And it normally comes through discomfort. It normally comes through having to go through enough of life where you have these moments where in desperation you throw yourself at the feet of God and you find God to be more loving and compassionate than you could imagine. And that's kind of how we get convinced that God is a God of extravagant love. It usually comes through suffering. Because before that, you know, we make God into a transaction. And much of the theology we create is transactional. Quid pro quo. I'll scratch God's back and then God will scratch my back and eventually we'll arrive at some, some good negotiations. Now, the question is, did Jonah learn from that discomfort? We don't really know. The beauty of the book of Jonah is it doesn't give us a resolution. I hated that about the book 35, 30 years ago. Now I love it about the book because it's an invitation. We don't know how Jonah... Did Jonah come away from this like some people who go through this kind of discomfort in life and have their entire lives disrupted? Did he come away from it and clam up and become calcified and bitter? Or did he become a person who, whose the shell was cracked and instead of covering it back up again, he left it open to become more generous, to embrace mystery, to embrace the fact of this life being a lot less black and white than we we're used to saying it was. I don't know. We don't know what happened to Jonah, but what about you? Today, what do you need to hear about God's extravagant love? How do you need to apply it right now to your life? What is it, where does it land for you for me to say that? You know, for many of you, I know where it'll begin. It'll start with, I need God's extravagant love because of, well, this person has wronged me, or that person has disappointed me, or I have this grievance that I need to not become an unforgiving, bitter person. But I want to tell you what 32 years of being a pastor has taught me. That you most likely have to figure out how to forgive yourself how to apply God's extravagant love to yourself. To your self-inflicted wounds. We all believe that God will heal the wounds that others have inflicted upon us. In many ways, we kind of think, well, you know, that, I need to go for that. But I wonder if you believe today that your self-inflicted wounds are wounds as well that God aims to heal and renew and restore. It may begin just there for you. I'm guessing Jonah, not trying to be a psychologist here, but I wonder if Jonah had a thousand ways in which that was true of him. I'm sure it was. He was a human being. So the first thing is, I think we know this. The second thing is we're afraid of it. And we're afraid of it for lots of reasons. We don't really understand. It doesn't make sense to us. It, it forces us to do Biblical math, and biblical math doesn't make sense to us. God just loving extravagantly, no conditions, just all in? It was hard for Jonah to buy this. But Jesus knew the Jonah story well. He talks about it in one place, so we know he knows all about it. But I think Jesus actually continued this same way of 
creating consternation among people. He tells a parable, for example, about a landowner. And the landowner goes out at 6 a.m., then goes out at 9 a.m., then goes out at noon, then goes out at 3, then goes out at 5, hiring people to work in his vineyard. And at the end of the day, he pays all of them a full day wages. And the 6 a.m. people were not appreciative. It's amazing how I, I prepare sermons and I just try not to... I, I can't go into the news, but how much of this stuff tracks with what's going on in our culture at large. People mad that this person who only worked one hour is going to get a full day's wage? And it's understandable, right? I mean, this has to do with issues of fairness and wages and things like that. We can understand it a little bit. Jesus was constantly making people do a different form of math when it comes to God's extravagant love. I mean, think about it, for example, just for a second. Who gets picked? Who gets picked at 3 p.m. instead of 6 a.m. or 5 p.m. that afternoon? Who are those people? It's, it's the people who perhaps are unable. Maybe they didn't have transportation to get there in a way that they could be first in line. Maybe there are physical incapacities or emotional incapacities. We don't know. Maybe they're the people that are unclean in some way, and so no one would ever choose them to work anywhere. Jesus says, there's room for the 3 p.m. and the 5 p.m. people in my realm and what I'm about. All of them. We don't, we don't judge people based upon how useful or productive they might be in this system. Everybody matters the 3 p.m., the 5 p.m., and so on. But for Jonah, this was really, really hard. I mean, Jesus essentially said, are you envious because I'm being generous? And there's a sense in which God could say the same thing to Jonah. and kind of does in his own way. I mean, the Ninevites were the worst. Torture, everything you can imagine with just hideous, terrible treatment of the Israelite community, and yet God is saying, go to them and preach grace. Go to them and preach mercy. The geography of divine grace embraces Nineveh, and in the economy of God's love, it just brings about consternation and irritation. They complain instead of celebrate divine generosity. So we don't really quite understand it. And that's understandable. We also, we don't, we fear it because we, we just, we don't know how to really begin to embody it in our lives. Nadia Bowles Weber said this. She said, like a parent throwing a wedding feast, God goes out into the street and just grabs up any old wretch. Like a sower who just wantonly, wastefully casts handfuls of seed, God just can't seem to be discerning. What's wrong with God? God's like a father who runs out into the street to embrace his wasted betrayer of a son. God simply exists on coming to get us, insists on making all things new, insists on ripping out our old hearts and replacing them with God's own. This is what God is like. This is the God that Jesus showed us as Jesus embodied God's very life in this world as the exact imprint of God's very being, as the writer of Hebrews says. But we also, we also fear God's extravagant love because we don't trust people with it. 
I noticed that when I preached this in 1997, I had one of the many caveats was, is, that doesn't mean you can just go and do anything you want. Because I was so distrusting of human nature. It had been so drilled down in me that we are inherently evil and bad that there must always be a guardrail. Instead of saying, wait a second, the gospel begins not in Genesis 3, but in Genesis 1, where God makes human beings in God's own image and says, this is very good. And so perhaps the, re, the, the rethinking that we've had to do here, and I know in my own life, is you know, we're actually inherently good who participates in evil. But I mean, just look at the way God talks about people in this passage. He says to Jonah, these people don't know their left hand from their right. That is the language of empathy and compassion. Look at Jesus looking out at the crowd and says they are what? Harassed and helpless. Those of you who were there in the first days, remember how much I talked about this passage. People are harassed. That's trouble from without. And they're helpless. That's trouble from within. In need of shepherd leadership. The good shepherd, the loving shepherd that Jesus comes alongside us to be. I think it's only appropriate that I quote Tim Keller in this sermon. He was an inspiration to me to be an urban church planter. And while Tim and I have our disagreements, this has always been one of my favorite quotes. Are you ready? It's not that we're all Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. <laughs> it's not that we're Ivan the, all Ivan the Terrible, but it's not for lack of talent. And so... With all of the very first Christians, I say, accept no substitutes. We participate in an original created goodness that's wounded by sin. I mean, we confess our sinful nature every Sunday in this church. We talk about sin, but those sins are not us and don't define us. They don't determine the human. They don't define the human person. The human God does. And then we're afraid because of what others will think of us. Believe it or not, really believing in God's extravagant love will not make you popular. <laughs> you would think it would. But think about poor Jonah. Poor Jonah is supposed to go back and tell his countrymen and women and everybody in Israel, hey, look, God is merciful to the Ninevites. He's going to get slaughtered when he says this. That is not going to be welcome news. There is a social cost to pay if you are going to follow Jesus. There just is. Jesus will meet you in it and walk with you in it. But there is a social cost to pay. You will not always be understood as you seek to embody and live out God's extravagant love. It's what put Jesus on the cross. I mean, look, here's the thing I want you to know. Jonah easily could have been thinking, go to Nineveh, great. I've got an entire book of the Bible 
the prophet Nahum, that relishes in the destruction of Nineveh. That's my sermon. And God said, no, that's not your sermon, actually. Another way in which we see the, human, the Hebrew Scriptures, they, they wrestle or in travail with one another in correcting along the way. I mean, look, you can always find verses to be exclusive and bigoted. You just can. Jonah had verses he could use. But the goal is not to be biblical. The goal is to be Christ-like. And so Jonah reluctantly preached the word of mercy, love, and grace. So let's admit that we're a little bit afraid of God's extravagant love. We're not quite sure what to do with it. But we know it. And then lastly, God's extravagant love is liberating. It is an invitation to liberation. An invitation to take on a new way of being in this world. It's a liberation from, frankly, the tribalism that I was so drenched in as a young seminarian. That this good news is for me and mine. I mean, this has been the ongoing problem and lesson and struggle with Jesus followers for all these many years. Who is this good news really for? This is what the whole New Testament in many ways is about. It's just a big argument about trying to figure out whether Jesus is actually for people outside of me and mine and all the different arguments going on about that. 99% of the early Christians thought that all of this is about me and mine. Whatever Jesus is up to in this world, it's about me and people like me. And the long history of the church is repenting of that. As I've said many times, we have a long history of we were wrongs. From Gentile inclusion to slavery, from our understanding of the cosmos to women's rights, from interracial marriage to divorce to how we love our LGBTQ siblings, the church has a long list of we were wrongs in our history. And so let's keep righting the wrongs. This is where Martin Luther was right. All of life is repentance. And I would say all of life is the invitation to repent from those ways in which we have made this only about people like me and mine and not good news for the whole world. And not just for the whole world. Did you love that passage where it says many animals there as well? Yeah. I know some of you right now, you know, you, you dream and talk to your dog or your cat or your animal, significant. It's like, listen, and you know, there's something mysterious there. I don't know what to put a finger on it. I'm going to go about 20 minutes on a theology of animals. Are you ready? <laughs> no? Okay. But you know, something's up with that. I just love that part of that passage. It's just another way in which when Jesus came to describe what he was about, it was the renewal of all things. I don't know how much more explicit Jesus could have been about it, about his extravagant love. We're still working this out on so many levels. And we're also liberated potentially, if we really believe this, from, yeah, the stuff we talked about earlier, from our own bitterness. I mean, you live long enough in this world and you will be hurt, you will be betrayed, people will disappoint you, you will definitely betray yourself and you will disappoint yourself. And really, as I get older, I'm kind of like, you got to have two options, I think, you can live into the future. One option is to believe and to seek to live out God's unconditional love the very best you possibly can. 
day by day. Or the other is to live out your life nursing your resentments. Seems to be those are your two choices. Which one of those do you think actually leads to life? I mean, we've got a lot to work on. My favorite and most unfavorite quote by Dorothy Day. I really only love God as much as I love the person I love the least. I'm sorry for even giving you that quote today. I should apologize. <laughs> That's just too hard. <laughs> too big of a challenge. But this is the invitation. is for you to be a community of people that continue in this city to embody and live out the extravagant love of God. To live, to be liberated to love with reckless abandon. To just love people. Not trying to convert them. Just love them. To just befriend and listen. To just invite to a journey. To walk alongside and see what this God of extravagant love will do with you just being present in the lives of others. Those are the people that have really changed your lives. They're not the people who said just the right thing or persuaded you of just the right thing. They're people who walked with you without judgment and loved you and gave you time and space to breathe. I'm sitting here just, I'm, really what I'm doing, I'm describing my therapist to you. who was just grounded and present. You may be thinking you don't have the skills to change the world. You don't have the gifts to, to make a difference in others' lives. And I'm telling you, just being a grounded presence that's so completely immersed in God's extravagant love is like oxygen to the people that you each day are in touch with. So I want you to do what Rachel Held Evans talks about when she says that God's ways are higher than our ways. Not because God is less compassionate than we are, but because God is more compassionate than we can ever imagine. That was another key verse in 1997. It was that verse, that place in Ephesians chapter 3 where Paul prays that people would know the height, the depth, the length, the, the magnificence of God's love. And it's so interesting that it goes on to say right there in that very part, he says, along the lines of, because I don't have it entirely memorized, because God can do and will do among you more than you can imagine. I see Jamie Hale sitting over there and Hal and Kirsten and Lewis Ruff is here. We'll talk about Lewis later on the service. Some of the folks who were there in the very earliest days, we, we talked about what might God do beyond our imagination, and God did it. And I don't think we did it perfect. <laughs> I'm sure as heck no, I didn't lead it perfect, that's for sure. Those of you who worked alongside me would say, yeah, I agree, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you on that one, Fred, Amen. But God can work with anything. God never works with people who've got it all perfectly figured out because they don't exist. 
with people who've begun to believe truly in God's extravagant love and a congregation that will believe that together? We'll do more than we can right now today imagine in the next phase of ministry of this church. And for that, we can be grateful. Let us pray. Gracious God, you invite us right now into the scariness of believing the extent of your extravagant love. And so give us grace to embody it in this city. And give us grace to apply it to our relationships and to ourselves. May this day be one more step in our own healing journey. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So thank you.